Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country or around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray, as you have heard in the promo on the Voice America Variety Channel. And I'm happy, oh, I'm still still excited about uh, being able to be with you for another edition of All Rise Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. As you'll discover Again, I keep saying this, but it's, I hope it's true and you find it to be true by spending an hour with us each Friday morning or it's taped. So in any segment you wish to retrieve, uh, it's, it's broadcast at 10 a.m. Eastern on Fridays, 7 o'clock Pacific in the morning on Fridays. And we'll take one of the issues of our day, many of which are just not discussed by our so-called leaders, and provide a pretty much in-depth analysis with really interesting guests on how we can apply libertarian values and approaches such that people everywhere will all rise together, frequently at the expense of many powerful and established social and special interests. Today, my guest is a longtime friend of mine. He's an attorney by the name of Ron Kohut. That's K-O-H-U-T. Really wonderful fellow. And, uh, we're going to talk about philanthropy. We're going to talk about how the private sector really does it better than the government. And, and I'll initiate this by saying kind of my overall philosophy is that if I were bleeding on the street right here, you would have no legal obligation to help me unless you caused my injuries. That would be different. So just because I'm alive does not mean you owe me money. It doesn't mean that you owe me care. But we will because we want to, because we are compassionate people. But every time the government steps forward to, to take in a particular issue, the private sector, the private people will take two steps back. But the, the best response for us all, because we want people to thrive. In fact, I've, I quoted this before. I'll quote Henry Ford once more, not my favorite person socially, because I think he was anti-Semitic, but he said, anyone that feels they can thrive by relying on the government should talk to the American Indian. And I think that that really says pretty much it all. So where is our first remedy to protect ourselves? It's us as individuals. The second fallback position is family, and then the private society, foundations, and that's what we're going to talk about today in this segment, and then as a final resort, last resort, it should be the government. So when I talk about the difference between government approaching issues and the private sector or foundations, I say, think mosquito nets, and people look at me like, what, Gray, what are you talking about now? And I say, look, there are a lot of countries in the world, many in Africa, where where we have the malaria as still a life-threatening disease. And it is shown that for every mosquito net we get on the ground so that someone can sleep at night under a mosquito net, we save a life. For every 10 mosquito nets, we save a life. And it costs government something in the order of $11 to 
put that mosquito net on the ground and the private sector foundations under $5. So it's the same mosquito net. It's just much more efficiently done. So we'll also talk about this, and, and this has hit me in the, in the eye rather directly because I was in the Peace Corps in Costa Rica. I've seen this. I've traveled fairly extensively. I hope everyone here agrees with me that a life, a human being's life in Brazil is fully as important as a human being's life here or in the Philippines or Nepal. It's just as important. And we have, have a friend named Ron Kohut, and I met him as an attorney. In fact, this is the only time that happened to me. I was a judge, trial court judge here in Orange County, California for 25 years, and he tried a very large case in my courtroom. Didn't know him before, and it's, again, the only time this happened to me, but I formulated the intent that once we had a final decision, once there was a final judgment on the case, I'd like to know him better. So once that happened, I invited him to join our professional organization called the American Inns of Court, where we meet once a month and talk about uh, ethics and camaraderie and the practice of law, education, etc. And then we became more and more friends, and we started river rafting together, uh, outdoor fellow, uh, interesting man. He he would take me fly fishing, and we'd do that. And then he kind of moved away from Southern California. I don't remember how many years ago. We'll ask him, and he'd always wanted to get into the wine business. So he went up to Sonoma County in California, Santa Rosa, and opened his own winery. He was named after his daughter called Domaine Danica, and I'll say shamelessly that the best Zinfandel I've ever had in my life uh, was his wine, Domaine Danica. I also asked him one time, because I was writing a column about wines, Ron, what's the difference between a $10 bottle of wine and a $30 bottle of wine? And he looked at me with a twinkle in his eye, which I could see actually over the telephone, and he said one word, advertising. So at any rate, he has become a wine aficionado to the degree that we have become very good friends. And now he lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We were there just a week or so ago, and he took us to a place called Tent Rocks National Monument tent like an Indian teepee, a tent rocks national monument, which I'd never heard of before. Do yourselves a favor and Google it and see it. It looks like, in effect, it was designed by J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Hobbit. Uh, it's just an amazing geological experience. We had a wonderful time. He's a good man. He's an open-minded man, and he has gotten involved in a philanthropy that is simply mind-boggling and heart-rendering. And it's called the Nepal Youth Foundation. I'm not going to talk about it so much because uh, I'm going to invite my guest to come on and talk about what is going on with the Nepal Youth Foundation. We can save a life, as I understand it and I believe it, for $250 that they have set up a nutritional camp that will teach mothers, young mothers, to help with regard to the signs of malnutrition for their children. We nurse some of these children back to health. So instead of me talking about what's going on there, Ron Kohut, welcome. Join us on All Rise. And if we employ what you're doing in philanthropy, again, we will all rise together. Ron Kohut, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Jim. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's nice to be here today. You know, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how uh, what it was like to be a really excellent uh, trial attorney for civil cases. What, what, what did you learn with regard to going into trial, the human element, and uh, maybe even a few tips? We'll take a couple of three minutes and talk about that. 
Well, you know, Jim, I've been a traveler now for about 50 years. And most you of the work that I've been doing. You started at the age of 12? I, <laughs> you started being a traveler <laughs> at the, the work, age of 12. That's amazing. <laughs> most of the work that I've done um, is resolving disputes between large corporations. And one of the primary things that we do as trial lawyers or as lawyers in general is we simply help people resolve their disputes. And sometimes we lose sight of that. But for a business dispute, all we're really doing is we're, we're trying to get people in and out of a problem area so they can get on with the rest of their lives. And, you know, we dress that up with court proceedings and pleadings and and things of that sort. But, you know, really at the end of the day, it's just helping people move past their problems so they can get on with their lives. And, you know, and that's what I've been doing for the last 50 Ron, years. I listen to your terminology, and it's really critical that I tell people for most human problems, there's no solution. You know, if somebody goes through a red light and hits you and, and breaks your arm, the solution would be not to have had your arm broken. Well, we just can't do that. So all we can do is resolve people's cases. And you used the word resolving several times. But if people only understood, you know, there's no perfect solution. Let's just resolve it, pick you up, dust you off, aim you in the right direction, maybe have a readjustment in money, and get on with your life, things go an awful lot better. Do you, do you agree? Well, one of the things that I try to explain to, to my clients is that a courtroom is not a church. And, you know, we're not, we're not necessarily dealing with right and wrong. We certainly aren't dealing with vengeance. Um, all we're really trying to do is to move past a problem. And for a business, and, you know, it's different in a, in a business case than a, than a criminal case or a personal injury case, but, you know, in the business case, it's just how can I get into, get in and out of this problem? as quickly and as economically as I possibly can. Um, and you try to do that uh, keeping in mind your obligations to other people in the sense that, let's say, you have someone who's on the stand and you're cross-examining them. You don't have to destroy them in order to make your case. You don't have to destroy the other side in order to win. All you have to do is reach a compromise which is acceptable enough to both parties that they say, okay, this may not be the best thing that's ever happened in my life. It may not be the result that I wanted, but it's a good enough result where I can now move on with my life. I can put this behind me. If it wasn't exactly what I had hoped for, at least I learned something from that lesson. And now I'm going to move on. I'm going to, I'm going to go on and do more productive things. Um, hardly anybody has ever made money in the law, in the law office. Um, and the best best thing you can do, certainly if you're in litigation, is to get the heck out of it. And what I try to do is get people in and out of litigation as quickly as I possibly can, and with as little injury uh, to their self-esteem as I possibly can, uh, and to their bank account. Sure. Well, you're in the service business, and, and you're doing people a favor, of course, by, by promoting that philosophy. And I'd never heard the courtroom is not a church before, but I'll certainly use that in the future. So if you get them out of litigation, you're going to have more time on your hands to go out and uh, spend time with your family and also do a little uh, whitewater rafting and a little fly fishing. Uh, do you enjoy those things? Well, you know, Jim, you and I have done a lot of whitewater rafting and, and fly fishing together. We've, we fly fished in, in Idaho. We've done it in Montana. Um, I, can't, I can't think of many things that are much better than standing in the middle of a river, a freestone river, 
on a beautiful day with a with a fishing rod in your hand. I think under those situations, it's not even really important that uh, that you catch a fish. It's, it's just nice to be out there and and nice to be throwing a line into uh, into the water. You know, I, I've heard uh, and that certainly. I've heard that comment before that it isn't all that important to catch fish, and I never believed it until I did the, the fly fishing. You know, you're you're at one with nature. You start looking at where the flows of the river are, where the fish might be, and you realize it's not just a river, but it's a valley, that, that it's all affected. It's almost a religious experience, and I've just really, really enjoyed it, and thanks for, for bringing that along. What was your most fun fly fishing experience? <laughs> Well, I, I'm going to try to stay away from fly fishing experiences I've had with you, um, <laughs> all of which were were entertaining. Um, you know, I, the best fly fishing experience I ever had was at the um, the confluence of the Loxaw and Selway rivers in Idaho, and uh, a good friend of mine, Mike Mix, who I've fished with a lot, and I had just arrived, and it was about five six o'clock in the evening. And the sun was starting to come down, and his idea was, well, let's let's you know get our gear on and, and get out in the river and see if we can throw the line a little bit before we have to call it a night. So the sun's coming down. We're uh, under a large grove of willows. Um, the river is beautiful. It's cool. It's calm. And all of a sudden, this hatch of caddisflies. Uh, just raises off the surface of the water. And there are thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of these insects. And there are fish popping up everywhere. Nice, large cutthroat trout coming to the, coming to the rise for these insects. And I, I don't know if I even continued throwing my line. It was just so incredibly beautiful. With with one exception that I had in Nepal that we'll probably talk about later, it may be the most surreal religious experience I've ever had. Yeah, it's it's true. You know, you you get into catch and release because uh, fish are more imp- are too genuinely valuable just to be caught once. Uh, it is really a religious experience, and I, I recommend it to to anyone. It's just quiet. You're at one with nature, and and you'll just love fly fishing. I certainly have. So then instead. We have about another two minutes before we get into our break, Ron. But tell us how you got into the wine business and why. Well, you know, you know, lawyers in general tend to to be attracted to wine. I don't know why that is, but we are. If you go up into the wine country, you'll find uh, any number of, of wineries that are owned by lawyers. Uh, uh, one of my clients, for example, is Kimmel Jackson, both the founders of of that winery or lawyers, uh, there are many lawyers still involved in the uh, in the operation of that winery. I got involved in in the wine business sort of the back door. I was down in Orange County, and I walked into a liquor store, and they had a kit, and for twenty dollars you could buy a kit which would allow you to make five gallons of wine. So I took the kit home and I started making wine. And it was like the worst stuff I'd ever had in my life. It was so bad that I didn't allow anybody to taste it. I thought the next year, the next harvest, that you know, maybe the problem was that I'd use this concentrated grape juice. And so I found a winery in Los Angeles, and I bought 
half a ton of grapes. And we brought the half a ton of grapes back to the home in Newport Beach, and we crushed it and put it in large trash containers and uh, put plastic on a, on a bedroom floor, hauled the trash containers full of, uh, full of this wine uh, into the bedroom so that we could maintain temperature control. And we made our first batch of wine. Um, and even that wasn't all that great. So then I started taking courses at the, at the uh, Enology School at the University of California at Davis, um, and we decided, well, we'll just move to the wine country because of the wine country, we get good grapes, we can get a good facility. And so we moved to the wine country. Yeah. Then one you know, day... Ron, you're, what you're saying here is just so important that life is so interesting. You have so many different fields to get involved with, uh, none of which is governed by or should be governed by the, by the government, but change is healthy. We're going to come back in the next segment, talk about your change moving to Santa Fe, New Mexico, a little bit about Tent Rocks National Monument, and then a huge change in your life and mine, which is the Nepal Youth Foundation. So all of those are to come here on All Rise. We're helping people all rise around the world. Stay tuned. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. And we're talking with my longtime uh, previous attorney friend and now in so many other ways friend, Ron Kohut. He's now living in Santa Fe and just, again, underscoring life is good. Change is healthy. Don't – I look back and think one of the worst things that can ever happen to a person is to be on your deathbed and look back over your life and think, 
oh, I wish I would have or I wish I would not have. I don't think that's going to happen to Ron Kohut. He takes different challenges. He meets them and changes healthy. In fact, just recently, well, I guess six months ago, Ron, you moved from Northern California to Santa Fe, New Mexico. That's called a change. Uh, what, what kind of uh, impact has that had upon you? And, and what are fun things to do in the Santa Fe area among, of course, there are lots. Well, you know, Jim, I, I grew up in California. Uh, I was born and raised there, so moving to Santa Fe um, was a pretty big change in, in uh, the life that Karen and I had had, my wife. Um, but I'd been coming to Santa Fe for about 30 years, so I knew what I was, I was getting when I came here. Um, you know, we went you recently, uh, you and Grace and, and Karen and I went to Tent Rocks, uh, uh, which is a national monument, wonderful place to hike, but, but one of only hundreds, if not thousands, of places to hike in Santa Fe. Um, we're just now learning about Santa Fe as far as you know permanent residents, so we're learning about those hiking places. We're learning about all the good restaurants. We're learning about all the things that make Santa Fe a very special place. Um, one of those and one that, that, that people who come to the community commonly uh, go to see is the Sanctuary de Chumayo. And it's a very small, it's a very old Catholic church with a lot of religious history. Um, it's uh, famed to claim, essentially, is that it has, has dirt with special properties. Um, I don't know how much I believe that, but I know that there are a lot of people who believe that. And as we're taping the school or this uh, show, there are thousands upon thousands of people walking to the sanctuary uh, on a pilgrimage uh, associated with the Easter holidays. Wow. And all that, it, it's, it's an amazing place, and it's so multifaceted. So, Ron, you have learned about Nepal. Uh, I have been there. In fact, uh, I found that they're enormously dependent and kind of jealous of India to the degree that, if I'm correct, uh, when I traveled from India to Nepal, they had a time change, but it was only 30 minutes. I'd never heard of anywhere in the world that uh, uh, had it were only 30, were 30 minutes apart from their neighbor. But they are, if you, you get into Kathmandu, and that's kind of a big city, not by everyone's standpoints, but that's where a lot is going on. But you get into the backwoods, and that's not hard to do in Nepal. Uh, the child... Uh, rate of death was just unacceptably high. Uh, you have been exposed to this. Tell us how you got exposed to it, what is it, and what is happening with this Nepal Youth Foundation, because I know our listeners are anxious to hear this, and it'll be a soul-satisfying, heart-satisfying discussion. What, what's going on in Nepal? How did you learn about it? And tell us about it. You know, a couple of years ago, I got a birthday present from my, my son-in-law. And it was a an all expenses uh, five star trip to to Nepal, and I was very excited. I'd been to part of the world. I'd visited and climbed in the Himalayas uh, in Bhutan. So when he came to me and he said, "Hey, would you like to come to Nepal?" I said, "Well, yeah, sure, of course, I'd love to go to Nepal." Well, it turned out that our five star trip wasn't really a five star trip at all. It was an opportunity for the Nepal Youth Foundation to expose people who at least they believed would be able to support them to the works that they were doing in Nepal. So when I arrived in Kathmandu, and you were talking about the size of the city, Kathmandu 
It's actually about a little bit larger than a million people, all crammed into about 49 square miles, which is 50,000 people roughly uh, per square mile. It is very, very congested, very dense. Um, there are some beautiful temples and such, but um, that's, that's really not what you see when you first arrive in Kathmandu. Um, so when we arrived in Kathmandu, I was introduced to Olga Murray. And Olga Murray is this remarkable woman. At the time I was introduced to her, she was in her early 90s. I think she was 90, 91 or 92. And she had started the, the Nepal Youth Foundation about 30 years ago. Um, she's a California lawyer, worked for the California State Supreme Court, and she started the Nepal Youth Foundation upon her retirement from the California Supreme Court. So she has uh, been working with it now from the time she was about 60 years old until uh, she's now 94 years old. During that period of time, she is credited um, with the help of her Nepali team with having improved or saved the lives of over 45,000 uh, Nepalese children. So one of the first things we did upon arrival in Nepal is we went to see what is known as a nutritional rehabilitation home. And these homes are built for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to save the lives of young children who are suffering from acute malnutrition. So one of the first things we did in Nepal is, you know, we went to one of these homes, the main home in Kathmandu, and, uh, we were, you know, introduced the staff shown around the home. But then we were brought into the dormitory, and in the dormitory, um, there were a large number of mothers and their, and their children. Um, the mothers would be sitting on a bed with the child or, or children that they had in treatment. And you could walk into this, this dormitory of these, of these folks, and you would see some children, and these are children like under the age of four, you'd see some children that were so listless that, that, that they, they appeared barely alive. But then you would go down two, three beds later into the dormitory, and you'd see these children who were, were happy and bouncy and playing, and, and, and they were absolutely, you know, what you would expect of a normal child here in the United States. And the difference between the listless child and the happy child, the, the healthy child, is about a month. So the rehabilitation home takes these young children in who are close to death, and over a period of a month, a month, they're able to treat the child and essentially bring them all the way back to normalcy. Um, and they can also, during that period of time, educate the mother who's required to stay in the home with the child for that month period of time on various farming and cooking practice, which is sort of assure the continued good nutrition of her family and the villagers that she informs of her experience when she, when she returns to the village. So the total cost, and, and you sort of indicated that in, in the early part of your show, the total cost of, of taking one of these children from near death to being healthy is about $250. It's just amazing. Um, you can't do that in the United States. You can't save a child for $250 in the United States which is one of the reasons that uh, Olga has concentrated her work in Nepal. And this is also a program where 
we've actually tied the work of a private foundation to the government, and they're, they're working hand-in-hand hand so the program isn't supported by, you know, Western sponsors forever. Ron, that's what you mentioned there is really key because, first of all, it should tear anybody's heart out to see a malnourished child. And, and what nutrition can do and love and, and stimulus is just amazing. I have a personal experience. Probably the best thing I ever did in my life was uh, adopt a son from Vietnam. Uh, he was set aside for us. I was in in Guam in the Navy in 1972-73, and we were able to adopt Kai from Da Nang. He came over to us at the age of 13 months and was listless, couldn't hold his head up more than half the time, malnourished. He had the you know extended extremities and the rest, but within a month or two, with nourishment and stimulation and love, uh, we could bring him back. Uh, and, and you're seeing the same thing in Nepal. And, and what you mention is that I learned in Peace Corps training that if you can, you can set up all the programs you want, but unless it will continue on without you, it will not be successful. And what you're saying, I believe, is that, yes, we're feeding these into the Nepalese government so they are making it their own and are carrying it on. Is that what's happening? Yeah, so the program, so the the Nepal Youth Foundation uh, over the last 10 years has built 17 of these nutritional rehabilitation homes in various areas, most of them remote, remote in Nepal. Um, I participated in the funding of one of those, as, as did you and some of our other friends. Um, the program is that the the you know the the money that pours in from the you know from the Western countries goes to build um, these facilities and operate the facilities for a period of five years. But the land for the facilities is actually donated by the hospital because these are all built in conjunction with a hospital, which is government owned. And then in the third year of operation, the government takes on responsibility for 25% of the operating costs. In the fourth year, for 50% of the operating costs. And in the fifth year, for, for 75% of the operating costs, so that at the end of the fifth year, the facility is turned over to the government, and the government runs it according to the program that's been put together by the Nepalese or by the Nepal Youth Foundation, um, you know, forever, or, or at least for as long as that goes. Um, the nice thing about this, and, and it's, it's something that the Nepal Youth Foundation does, is they like to jumpstart the program. So for a nutrition rehabilitation home, for example, that's about a $250,000 jumpstart. But once that money's been provided, once the facility's up and running, it's turned over to the government. And, and that's, you know, then the foundation can go on to address other uh, needs that it addresses um, for the children uh, of Nepal. The, the other sort of really important thing about the foundation's uh, program is that it's not run by people sitting in their offices in California or New York uh, or London um, it's really run by the Nepalese. So let me just give you a, a quick number and then I'll, I'll stop on this. But I, I don't know the precise 
numbers of people who work for the Macaulay Youth Foundation. I, I believe if if you look at the salaries and stuff, it's probably less than ten people, and that covers the United States, London, uh, and Germany. But the number of employees it has in Nepal are 130. So when you look at the foundation, essentially the foundation is being run by Nepalese. They figure out what the programs are. They figure out how to make them happen. They, make, they figure out how to do it efficiently. Um, and then they go to their Western partners and say, look, this is what we would like to accomplish. Can you help us? jumpstart a program that the government does not have the money to do, and then we will find a way for that program to continue to, to accomplish the goals that you want to accomplish, saving children, for example, um, but without your having to write a check every year to do that. And that's, that's pretty typical of the foundation's programs. That's just fantastic. Ron, before we end this segment, can you tell our listeners how they can learn more information about the Nepal Youth Foundation and how they can contact them, even with an eye toward assisting? How do we do that? Into the Internet, so you go on the Internet. The, the handle for uh, the Nepal Youth Foundation is www.nepalyouthfoundation.org. Um, if you go to their website, it describes the programs, it has videos that describes the programs, and then it has an opportunity to, to donate. If you'd like to get more involved than that and, 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 and get involved in the manner in which I'm involved, which is being a burden to every single one of my friends who has a nickel, um, you know, give me a call. Uh, or contact me and tell me you're interested, and I will find a way for that to happen. Um, my email address is www is uh, Ronald at Kohut K O H U T Law L A W dot com. And if you're interested, I would be more than happy to get you involved in uh, in the foundation and uh, even line up a trip to Nepal so that you can see the foundation's work uh, in action if you'd like. Well, this is Jim Gray. I, I'm not doing this for just jollies. Uh, Ron Kohut is doing some wonderful things, and we're devoting one of our segments on All Rise to showing how people around the world can all rise together by employing the addressing and, and the approach that the Nepal Youth Foundation does through really good people uh, like Ron Kohut. And I've, I've contributed already. Uh, I'm an actually a sponsor for two children in their vocational training that we're going to talk about in the third segment. But beneficially, too, when you send a check, it is tax deductible in the United States because we have a presence here in this country. So that's, that's what's going on. I hope that your hearts are gladdened by hearing these wonderful things happening with children in Nepal. I hope you agree with me and with Ron Kohut that every child, no matter where, deserves a shot at a good, decent childhood and a good, decent life. And they are doing that with the Nepal Youth Foundation. So when we come back, we're going to expand that into even vocational training and uh, other more exciting things when we come back in the last, in last segment with Mr. Ron Kohut and All Rise. We'll talk to you then. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, this is Judge Jim Gray, and welcome back to All Rise. Uh, we're talking with my longtime friend, Ron Kohut. Uh, he was philanthropically minded, an excellent attorney, and he is in the service business. And he's shown this as an attorney. Uh, he tries to help his clients get away from litigation. That might be short-term, not in his financial best interest. Long-term, he's as busy as can be because he's providing a service. And talk about providing a service. We've talked about the Nepal Youth Foundation and just the heart-rendering work that they're doing to, in effect, not only help feed children and take them out of malnutrition, that's fine for a short run, but they're also helping to train, teach the mothers on what's going on, the values of nutrition, what what they can do that's important and not. And beyond that, then, as you heard, the mothers are going back to their even more remote villages and passing along that information to others. That is the sort of thing that works. But there's another segment to what the Nepal Youth Foundation is doing that we've not discussed yet, and that is vocational training. Because in Nepal, typically, uh, they don't have the technicians, the mechanics, the electricians, the plumbers. So in effect, people from India come into Nepal and take these jobs where now, because of the Nepal Youth Foundation, they're training the Nepalese to be able to do this. And uh, Ron Kohut, again on the line, is going to explain to us what that program is, how it started, and the wonderful things that are occurring. So Ron, that's a pretty big buildup. I think you'll be able to meet the challenge. What's going on there on vocational training? Well, so one of the problems in Nepal is that the unemployment rate is is very, very high. It's it's over 40%. And the skilled labor jobs in Nepal uh, are primarily taken by Indians who have those skills and not by the Nepalese uh, who do not. 
So one of the things the foundation's trying to do is to train um, the, the, the young men and women uh, in Nepal in all of the basic trades, uh, carpentry, plumbing, uh, and, this, and the like, so they can go in and take some of those jobs and, and, and actually work in Nepal. Um, and their success rate has been pretty phenomenal. Their graduates, uh, about 90, 95% of those graduates immediately get jobs upon graduation. The program is fairly short. It's about a six-month uh, total program. It costs about $700. And for that $700, you improve someone's life, really, and the, and the lives of their family forever. You can double um, or and even triple the amount they would make on an annual basis. The, the annual income, the average annual income in Nepal, is only about sixteen or $1,700. That's annual. That's not, it's not weekly. It's not monthly. That's for the whole year. Um, the daily uh, salaries are, or the amount people can make is, is, is just about $8. And, and that's for the guy who's you know, sitting in the middle of the street in the hot sun uh, digging a, a water trench for, for 12 hours. That's, that's $8. So if, if, if the Nepalese can improve the skills of their workers... They can they can greatly enhance their ability to to bring in money and to uh, to take care of their families. But that's only one part of the of the issue. The other part is that with globalization, we now have countries that are supply countries, and we have countries that are demand countries. Supply countries um, are, are countries that that supply labors to to demand countries. And for example, Nepal supplies a huge amount of labor. It's essentially, you know, it's, it's resource that it has to sell to the world to countries that, that need workers. And, you know, the Gulf states, uh, uh, for example, are a pretty good example of that. And Nepal sends a lot of workers to the Gulf states. The problem is that each year, about a 1,000 of those workers return to Nepal in body bags. And the reason is because when, when they're taken to these other countries, um, they're asked to do very, very high-risk jobs and uh, for very little money, often with less money than they, than they originally agreed, uh, and they're, they're killed in the process. So what the foundation's hoping to do is to essentially keep those people in country so that they're not exposed to those risks or if they do have to go out to another country to work, if they go out as a skilled laborer and they're not exposed to that risk. There's a sort of a very famous case in Nepal where a group of uh, Nepali laborers were supposed to go to Jordan to work in a hotel, a fairly low-risk job. But when they got to Jordan, they were, they were bait and switched, and they ended up being on a bus in Iraq uh, in, a, in a war zone, unprotected, um, on the way to an army base to work for an American contractor. Well, en route to the army base, uh, the, they were captured by a group of terrorists and uh, murdered in, in very graphically, and uh, and it occurred on the television in Nepal. It was a very big deal. 
as you might suspect. And these people just didn't have any choice once they got to Jordan. They had to go wherever the labor contractor wanted them to go because they had invested so much of their money and so much of their family's money in getting them there in the first place by paying brokers and paying transportation costs that they simply had to go uh, where they were told to go, whether they wanted to or not. And the families would not have been able to buy their freedom, uh, their father, their son. Uh, It's... It's pretty well, tragic, and what what the foundation's attempting to do, and this is a guy by the name of Sam Pernil, who's the president of the foundation, who's in, in Nepalese. Um, he wants to build these vocational training centers throughout Nepal, and he wants to do it on the same program as the nutritional rehabilitation homes, where after a five-year period of time, they're turned over to the government to to run. Again, it's a jumpstart program to help young Nepalese both in-country and and off-country. Of course. Well, we all know there's some really awful things that happen in the world, and we'll never be able to get rid of them, but we can reduce them. And how, you know, by getting people involved in nutrition, uh, in vocational training, just like the Nepal Youth Foundation is doing. And we can learn those lessons in our country as well. In an upcoming segment of All Rise, we're going to talk about school choice, which uh, can be used for vocational training. We'll, we'll talk about this rather heavily, but allow parents to choose where their government money is going to be spent for the education of their children. And, you know, a lot of our people are not going to become economists and doctors and, and uh, uh political or or, uh, college professors, that they should become mechanics. They should learn a trade. That's what's happening in Germany very successfully. uh, And that way you can live your life. You can support yourself. There'll always be a need for plumbers, for example, or electricians or whatever. And that's what they're doing with the Nepal Youth Foundation. We should learn the same thing here and get more involved in vocational training. Because once you have a skill your life is going to be different. Uh, and, you know, even if it's running a sewing machine, you can at least carry your sewing machine with you. Uh, if you are a cook, you can go anywhere and pursue your profession. That's what they're doing in Nepal. They're giving people these skills, and uh, you're just seeing the truly wonderful benefit of that. So uh, I have received, as I said earlier, I'm sponsoring two of the young people children in the vocational training. Uh, You will just love to see the letters that they have written to me actually in English, which is certainly far and away their their second language. And it's just heartwarming. Ron, again, tell us how can we contact uh, the Nepal Youth Foundation? How can people get involved and earn the warm, wonderful feelings that I have gotten by my small involvement? Well, again, Jim, they can go to the foundation's website, which is www.nepalyouthfoundation.org um, if they want to get uh, more involved. Um, shoot me an email at ronald at kohut, com, and uh, I'll do everything I can to uh, give any of your listeners an opportunity to make things better. It's really uh, good stuff. children and young adults in Nepal. 
what in Nepal, uh, other than this foundation, but just from a tourist standpoint, uh, and uh, not everyone will get up to a base camp in Everest, but, but if and when, why should, why should a tourist go to Nepal in the first place, Ron? What are they going to see that's unique? Any choice you know, I know. I, 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 I was in Nepal in 2016. I was, I was there again four or five months ago. Um, and the time that I spent there was devoted to visiting nutritional rehabilitation homes, visiting vocational training centers, uh, visiting outreach camps where, where children were getting their first opportunity to actually see a, a real doctor, a pediatrician. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend those as tourist destinations for anyone. I think that most people go to Nepal for the for the trekking. Most people go for the climbing. Um, I haven't done that in Nepal. I've done it in Bhutan, uh, a mountain to mountain. I'm pretty confident that the Himalayas in Bhutan are a whole lot different than the Himalayas in Nepal. But if you're going to Nepal and you're going there to see the beauty of the country, um, then you go trekking. If you are there to see the beauty of the people, and that's why most people return to Nepal, it's the people, it's not the country, um, you know, then there are any number of, of tourist destinations, uh, Pokhara, Chitron, um, Lumbini, um, which, which have appeal. Lumbini in particular, because that's the birthplace of, of Buddha, um, I did spend some time there, which, if we have time, I'd be more than happy to share with your listeners. If not, we can move on to another subject. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on to a kind of a depressing experience that I had when I was in Nepal, that we had a tour guide, and he was taking us around a town. It was not Kathmandu. It was outside. And he took us to his home. And maybe you've encountered this also, Ron, or not. But uh, he showed us his home, and... His mother, his mother and father lived downstairs in a just a one-room kind of apartment. Upstairs, our tour guide and his wife lived, and then they had this cement patio sort of thing, which was uncovered. And then at the end of that, they had the kitchen. They always separated the kitchen from the living quarters because the kitchen could catch fire, and they didn't want it to spread to the living quarters. And the reason I'm bringing this up is I saw our guide's wife who was probably the most forlorn young lady I've ever seen because the status there is that once you get married, your wife comes to live with your family and she becomes, in effect, the servant of the parents and her husband. And so anything that would be done, she would do, and she just had no escape. She came from a neighboring village and hasn't even been able to go and see her family maybe more than once a year uh, and has no hope other than to have children, to raise those children, eventually have uh, one of their sons marry one of her children so that she could have some young lady come and be a servant to her. H had you encountered something like this? It was just awful, but that's, that's what I was left with. Had you seen that there in Nepal? Well, historically, the, the role of women in Nepal has been very challenged. Um, that's, you know, because of traditional practices, because of religion, is because of illiteracy. Um, there are any number of things, bad things, that, that can happen to, to women in Nepal. Uh, a lot of that's changing. I'll give you a real quick example. Um, in Nepal, they have something uh, called a kamlari, and a kamlari is a young woman 
Uh, usually they're about four or five years old, where they're sold into, you know, really what amounts to slavery, and they're sold by their families um, to to a to a more affluent family. Um, in exchange, uh, if they're paid at all, they get about fifty dollars a year. Uh, the girls will stay with the family until they're about seventeen or eighteen. They're usually uh, not fed properly. Uh, they're not educated, even though they're supposed to be. Um, and they end up getting kicked out when they're 17 or 18 because usually the mother of the family sees that they, they're becoming a threat to her sons or to her husband. And when, you know, when they're thrown out of the family without education, they really, they really don't have an opportunity to do anything. Yeah. That system existed in Nepal for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Uh, until uh, fairly recently. And right. one of the things in the Paul Youth Foundation is they did is they had that practice outlawed. And then they saved all of these girls from slavery and trained them with the sewing machines that you referred to earlier in your program. And now those, people, those young women are leading productive uh, lives, helping to support their families back in the village. Well, Ron, thanks to you, the Nepal Youth Foundation. Thanks for being with us on this segment of All Rise. And uh, yes, there's some bad things going on in this world, but help is on the way in so many ways. And uh, certainly the Nepal Youth Foundation will do it. We discuss these things openly, directly here on All Rise. And if we employ libertarian values, the foundations do a better job. We're caring. We're out there. Good things are happening in this world, and we need to focus on those as well. We'll continue to do that with other approaches, Libertarian Way, here on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Join us next Friday. Join us. Spread the word to your friends. Help is on the way. And in the meantime, this is Judge Jim Gray saying, life is good. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us control.